Yeah, yeah. Mandy's very good at editing and can fix your internet service as well. Oh, really? <laughs> That'd be pretty nice to have. Yeah, she'll edit out all the dead spots in your internet. This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Freelancer Show. This episode is sponsored by Nerd.us. Do you wish that somebody else would handle all of those operation details when it comes to hosting your client's web applications? Nerd.us is a Ruby on Rails managed hosting designed to make your life easy. They migrate everything for you, and new signups or referrals come with a $100 discount or a referral fee. To sign up, go to freelancershow.com slash nerd. That's freelancershow.com slash N-I-R-D, and enter freelancer into the contact form for a discount. If you're someone who runs your own service-based business, then spending less time on pesky admin tasks means having more time to focus on your client's work, which is why you need to give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks is the invoicing solution that makes it incredibly simple to create and send invoices, track your time, and manage your expenses. It allows you to quickly see and track the status of your invoices, expenses, and projects, and allows you to keep track of your expense receipts in FreshBooks. For your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com slash freelancers and enter the Freelancer Show in the How Did You Hear About Us section when signing up. This week's episode of the Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 182 of the Freelancer Show. This week on our panel we have Philip Morgan. Hi there. Ruben Lerner. Hi, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week, we have a special guest. That's Pete Keen. Hello. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Pete Keen. Uh, I have been freelancing for, oh, geez, like two years now. And I kind of discovered a whole bunch of pitfalls along the way about sharp edges that you can easily cut yourself on when you're kind of setting up your business. And I collected all of that stuff that I learned and wrote a book about it called Handle Your Business. Awesome. I was thinking that you should have called it Mind Your Business. I thought Mind about that, business. but there was actually several books already titled that. Oh. So. <laughs> wow. I'm not as creative yeah. as I thought. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you're talking about how to kind of set up your business and get things rolling. Before we get going too far, I guess we should disclaim that I am not a lawyer. None of these guys are lawyers or attorneys or accountants or, you know, we're, we're professionals at what we do and not at all this other stuff. Right. Yeah, at least from my perspective, is very U.S.-focused. Okay. I've had some interest about European stuff, but I haven't delved into it at all. Cover your ears, Reuven. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, the U.S. <laughs> is such a bit player in world commerce, though, so I'll just... like. <laughs> there you go. 
So where do you tell people to start? I'm going freelance. What do I do? Right. So get a separate bank account is like step number one. It doesn't have to be in, in a company's name or anything. And then get some clients. That's like a huge topic all by itself, but that's not really the focus of my book. Uh, Brennan Dunn's work is great for that. So once you have a client or two, then you can talk with a CPA about setting up what's called a, an S-corp, which is a specific like type of corporation. And then that'll save you a bunch on taxes. But basically, the, the idea is once you have a bunch of money coming in as a freelancer, you have the privilege and honor of organizing your own taxes. So you kind of want to optimize it as much as possible. Right. Um, so the way I have things set up, because you hear S-Corp and LLC and yeah, C-Corp yeah. and all this stuff. And the way that I have things set up is I have an LLC that we file as an S-Corp. Yep. That's how I'm set up too. IRS doesn't know about LLCs. Uh, right. An LLC is a type of business that is a lot less formal than an actual corporation, but it's still gives you a bunch of the protections that a corporation does. And so they're super popular for anything that isn't publicly traded. Like if you, you know, look at any, go into Starbucks and you look at their, their uh, cups, it'll probably have an LLC name on it for the licensing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So an LLC and then the IRS kind of doesn't care about that. So they let you decide to be taxed as a corporation of one of a couple different types. And S Corp is one of those. Yeah, so the way I understand it is that with an S-Corp, I have a reasonable salary, Yeah. which when my accountant told me what my reasonable salary was, I laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. And then I said, okay, well, if that's what they want to tax me on, that's fine. And then the rest of it gets taxed as capital gains, if I remember right. Uh, It's still ordinary income, but you don't pay the payroll taxes on it. Oh, okay. That's the big deal, is that you, you have to pay state and federal on the whole amount, but you only have to pay payroll taxes on whatever your salary is. Right. And that payroll tax is about around 15%. Yeah, exactly. The social security and Medicare and for freelancers, it's double because your employer, when you're a W2 employee actually pays half of that money. Yep. And lucky you self-employed guy, you get to pay both. I have an interesting question around that. So I remember being shocked more than anything I've ever been shocked by my whole life. Like, and I've witnessed car accidents and, you know, I've seen people (laughs) almost be killed and, you know, I've I've seen some stuff, but I was never as shocked and appalled as the first time my first year freelancing that I got sort of a wake up call about the tax rate because I did not. I'll just tell you, I did not do very well in my first year of freelancing. I was like, you know, barely scraping by, if that. So I was like, wow, they just don't give you a break. So I, here's my question is, what should the new freelancer be prepared for in terms of maybe just a rough ballpark percentage of their income that they ought to set aside for the purposes of taxes? So a super, well, it depends on your state, but most states, I would say a really conservative estimate would be like 40% of your gross. Put aside in a separate savings account till the end of the year for your first year. After that, you know, you're going to, you're going to know better what to expect so you can reduce that. But the first year, 40% is, is a good number. Okay. That's super clear. And uh, I bet a lot of other people are going, wow. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's a lot. This is probably for people who are thinking about 
going freelance or thinking about starting a consulting business and they're like, wow, and if I'm consulting, I can earn twice as much as I did as, as a salaried employee. The mm-hmm. reason why consultants are charging twice as much or more than salaried employees is precisely for this reason or among other things for this reason, right? Like there are other reasons yep. as well, but you're, you're basically paying for a lot of taxes that um, employees don't even know about or don't think about. Right. Yeah. One of the great little bits about actually filing as an S-Corp and paying yourself a reasonable salary is that you have to pay unemployment tax for yourself on the assumption that maybe one time you're going to fire yourself and have to claim unemployment. Which I'll I'll tell you, I've been tempted. Most states don't let you do. My boss is a jerk. He might fire me any day. Yeah, mine too. He's an asshole. Well, I, well, I mean, I have that also. I mean, obviously, I'm living in Israel, so like the taxes are totally wildly different and structured differently. But mm-hmm. you're required by law here. Employees are required when you fire an employee. That employee then gets severance pay, and they get severance pay worth for every year they worked for the employer. They get one month salary. So if you worked somewhere for five years, you then get five months salary, and it's typically not paid by the employer like when like right away in one lump sum but rather it's paid over time. And every month you put into a, a severance fund. So I'm required to put into a severance fund for exactly what you said, so that if and when I ever close the company and the company fires me, I will then get severance for all of my years of service to the company, which at this point is 20 years. So huh, maybe I should fire myself. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I'm fired. I'm taking a sabbatical. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty sweet. I'm fired. I'm cashing out. Oh, and I'm starting this other business. Yeah. 20 yeah. months from now. Well, but I know people who use that basically like and, and typically, especially in high tech and other highbrow sorts of industries, even if you quit, you're typically then given the severance. Like that's just sort of a, a reasonable thing because the money was put into this fund anyway. And so I know people who left a job or were fired and they use the five, six, eight, ten months of severance to do retraining and do something new or get, you know, sort of get their, their feet um, I don't know what the term would be, but sort of get their feet steady in doing consulting and then yeah. they sort of you know, ramp up to it. Yeah, that sounds yeah. like a really useful thing. And for new freelancers in the U.S., I think the common guidance is if you can save up like six months mm-hmm. because it takes a long time potentially to get a client and a steady workflow and everything. Absolutely. And you'll have months I mean, hopefully not, right? But there are sometimes dry months that takes time to find clients in your niche and for them to hear about you and on and on and on. I mean, yeah. I, I've, started, I've started doing uh, coaching for people doing technical training. And I've told them, if you're starting now, it might be six months before you get your initial gig because it's going to take months to like get your name out and do the marketing and people hear about you. And then if they pay net plus 30, net plus 60, right. you know, it's going mm-hmm. to take time. And having that savings is just like, a good idea anyway each month. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I want to just as a counterpoint to that say that I did get a couple of clients within a month or two of going freelance. But I guess the counterpoint to my counterpoint is is that I already had an audience that I could market to. Right. So yeah. there there are exceptions. I'm just, but but it is it's it's a terrific idea. And when things have slowed down for me, they usually slow down for two or three months at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had the same kind of audience available, which was a huge leg up. So if you're able to do that, that is helpful and and is continuing to be helpful. So going back to the topic of an S-Corp, I'm just going to point out that I have no idea how I changed from what I was before to an S-Corp. My accountant did that for me. So make sure you have a top-notch accountant who can take care of that stuff for you and explain the benefits and what's going on. You don't have to know all the details. I'm sure I signed some forms or something, but I didn't need to know all the details. I just needed to know how it was going to work and how to pay my taxes under the new setup. Yeah, it's actually just a half-page form, but it's definitely useful to have guidance and somebody to sit there with you and answer all your questions. Mm-hmm. 
and to fill out the paperwork for you so that you're not paying as any more than you have to. Right. Actually, an interesting fact I learned, just having a CPA's signature on your taxes reduces your audit risk. You can do oh, all really? kinds of other stuff in it, wow. but it actually reduces your audit risk. That's because presumably they know what they're doing. Presumably, yes. And Can there I, are no fraudulent accountants out there. So, <laughs> Oh, no, none. I, I have a story. <laughs> Not on a fraudulent uh, accountant, but so the accountant that I went to, he had me set up my business as a partnership. And I've told this on the, the show before, so I'm just going to summarize. But anyway, the way that he had it structured, it turned out that the IRS decided after I'd been in business for like four years that they didn't like that setup. And all the people who were using him as their accountant and had filed their taxes that way, had to pay back taxes. Oh. And I lucked out because he brought on a junior partner after I'd been with him for a year or two. And so I had been filed under his partner's tax ID instead of his. And so I've lucked out. I haven't had anyone come and ask me questions yet. And I'm hoping that that yet becomes never. But it, it really is risky. If you pick the wrong person or if you pick somebody who's doing something a little bit oddball, and it turns out that the IRS decides that oddball is not cool, then you're going to have trouble. So it, it really is important. Now, I, I went to him off of a recommendation. I'm perfectly happy with his partner now. Um, and he's actually left the company for a mission, a religious mission for a couple of years. So I am dealing with his partner because he's not there. But it turned out to be a risky thing picking the wrong accountant. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to pick the right accountant. You kind of right. got to just have to go by referrals. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, how do you pick an honest person? You kind of just have to evaluate them as a person. Yep. So, and it's the same with attorneys. Like my aunt's an attorney and I asked her, how do I pick a good attorney? And she's like, I don't know. I have no idea. Well, and he wasn't trying to screw anybody over. He was just, he thought that it was audit proof and et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, they've, his partner has wound up cleaning up a lot of that audit stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of my motivations for writing the book is it's not necessarily meant as a step-by-step guide. It's more of a here are a bunch of very basic bits of knowledge that you probably don't have already and you can then talk with an advisor and help to evaluate an advisor based on this. And I tried to make it as correct as possible and like buy the book as possible so that when you go to somebody and they say, well, that's okay, but here's a better way, you can you can kind of evaluate what they're telling you. So. so Pete, you mentioned that the first thing someone should do if they're interested in being in business is open a bank account. So presumably people have bank accounts already. My question yeah. is, and I, I, I mean, I, I sort of know the answer, but I'm curious to hear your take on this. Why open a separate bank account for the work that you're doing if you're just, you know, just doing freelancing? It helps with budgeting and it helps with, with sanity, really, is the, is the big thing. If you're just depositing your client checks into your personal bank account, and then mixing all that money together, and then now you have to pay taxes out of that, and it just gets crazy. The best thing to do is kind of segregate that money off and then kind of pay yourself a salary. Give yourself a steady income that you can budget your household on and maintain some semblance of sanity in this this line of business that is not steady or not necessarily steady. Yeah, my experience with this, because initially I was doing that. I was just putting it into my personal bank account, and my accountant was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> And it wasn't because I couldn't do that. I couldn't once I had the LLC and wanted right. the LLC to get paid. But the real issue was that, like you said, it's it's a budgeting thing. And you have to be able to justify any purchases you make as deductible, yep. at, at least in the U.S., 
as business expenses, and it's much easier to do that if all of those deductible expenses come out of one account and all the non-deductible ones come out of the other. Right. That's a good point. Yeah, and the same with with a credit card. Like, if you use a credit card, you should probably have, if you haven't set up a formal business entity yet, at least use a credit card that that's the only thing you use it for mm-hmm. is your business expenses. Yeah, so I have my my corporate credit card right here. Nice. Hey, did you get that Which number? Means- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Now. Screenshot. Quick, quick, it's frozen. Oh, no. You missed the numbers in the back. Here, I'll show those too now. No, I, I and actually, I I found having separate accounts. And separate credit cards to be a relief for me, not just um, you know for the accounting and for tax purposes. That it allows me to say this is for me personally and this is for the business. Mm-hmm. Even though I do you know as much as possible of my personal expenses under the business. So like the daily newspaper we subscribe to is a business expense, but that's like a legitimate one. Or so says my accountant, who I believe is legit. But like, and every country, and I'm guessing every state also has different rules about what you can and cannot expense. And what's yeah. acceptable, but this allows us to really have a, a fairly clear separation between the two, mm-hmm. which which I find just really to be a relief. Hey, Pete, I've got a question for you. When you were researching your book, what kind of common misconceptions did you find you would like people to know about? One of the big ones is an LLC stands for limited liability company, and there's a really widespread misconception about what liability means in that because people think about their car insurance, right? Liability when you have a car insurance is, well, I ran into that guy's car and I injured his car and that insurance protects me from having to pay out of pocket for that. But that's not what that means in terms of you know LLC. What that really means is if the LLC takes on debt, like you have to have to get a bank loan to buy a machine or something, and the bank will probably make you sign for it personally. But assuming the bank doesn't make you sign for it personally, if the LLC goes under, you're not actually liable for that personally. They're not going to come take your house to satisfy that loan, for example. The, or if, if someone sues you, mm-hmm. they can only go after the money that's in the business, which is another reason to have separate accounts for the business. Because if you mix them, then it muddles things and lawyers can go after, like pierce the company itself. Were there other things that were surprising to you that you learned going through the process of writing a, a book on the subject? The huge variety of state tax laws. Like I don't go into <laughs> much in the book, but every state is different, and every state is more or less aggressive on certain things. It turns out like New Jersey is super aggressive on taxation for some reason, like more so than California, which I thought was the worst. But When you say aggressive, you mean like the, the rates are high or they tax many things or they enforce it more? They enforce it more. There are certain conditions where if you do business with a client in New Jersey, even though you never step foot in New Jersey, you may owe New Jersey state tax. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, I find that a little ridiculous. Yeah. Come over to Utah and get me. <laughs> Dork. I've, I've heard the same thing about certain countries where if you if you do work for or with a company in their country, mm-hmm. and it's like, yeah, we're a sovereign nation. Go for it. Yeah, that's well. The U.S. does that too. Just so you know. yes, they do. I, yeah. I there's a whole. It was gonna be a mess, but I think they fixed it. The there was this whole Vatmos thing for people who uh, sell software. I don't think it necessarily applied to consultants, but for people who sell software or eBooks or something, even if you weren't in the European Union, if you've never stepped foot in the European Union, if your customers live there, you have to pay tax on that. Um, right. So, so you have to in pay fact. That. That's true. So like, I mean, the, the rule in Europe is the same as far as I know as the rule in Israel, which is that is paid by local companies or local people to local companies, but not if you're from abroad. 
it could be that within the EU, they sort of pay that to each other. But basically then, I guess it was like a year ago, year and a half ago, something along those lines, the EU said, well, if you're selling digitally to people in the EU, then they need to pay that. And it doesn't matter whether, as you say, like the person selling is located there or not. I was at the time transitioning from using uh, DPD, get DPD for selling my ebooks to Gumroad. And so I got announcements from both of them saying, we have taken care of this. You don't need to worry. That is going to be included. Just sit tight. And the people who are in the EU will see this. And a few weeks later, I got very angry email from someone in, I think, Germany or Austria saying, hey, I wanted to buy your ebook. How dare you charge me that on this? I was like, it's not my fault. It's, it's, it's yours <laughs> right. or, or your government's at least. So, so that is something people need to think about, but it shouldn't like it should be transparent if you're using any sort of yeah. digital delivery service. Absolutely, it just may be a surprise. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the first couple times. Yeah, I so, guess my main issue is just that if you don't have jurisdiction here, then how can you tell me that I have to pay this? But you're not paying it. Like you never right. have to see it. You never worry about it if you see these guys. Right. Right. I mean, if you set up your own e-commerce store, then I'm guessing you do, and in theory, they could come after you. But I find that I find it really hard to believe that you know the EU tax authorities are going to come hunt you down in Utah, Chuck, for you know your your conferences. Yeah, exactly. Well, and the other thing is, is like I've talked to my accountant about sales tax, you know, mm-hmm. because I am selling a digital good or whatever. And he's like, you have to pay if you're selling these kinds of things and you have to pay if you're selling these kinds of things, which is another reason to have an accountant, right? Because I had no idea. And the conference tickets, it turns out I don't have to pay sales tax on. But, you know, in another state, I might have to. If I were selling like physical books or T-shirts or something like that, then that's a different story. Yeah, it's it's weird. I live in Michigan and Michigan doesn't charge sales tax on downloadable eBooks, but it does charge sales tax on downloadable software. And so I wrote a Ruby gem and tried to sell it. (laughs) And I would have to, I had to write a bunch of code to collect sales tax just for Michigan residents. Oh yeah. That is crazy. Yep. Never got it. Maybe you could, maybe you could package it as a book and say, you can either, you can either get the source code to the gem as an eBook or as a conveniently right. packaged digital version. Yeah. Right. If I were mailing out physical books, then any book I sold in Utah, I would have to pay sales tax on. Yep. So, Pete, is there a, a, a number of states in the U.S. that are particularly friendly to freelancers from a tax or business perspective? That's a good question. Uh, I think Washington State's laws are kind of weird. They don't have any income tax, but if you're a business, you have to pay this thing called B&O tax. I think Texas is actually really friendly to freelancers because they don't have state income tax at all and they're, their other taxes are relatively low. So yeah, cost heard, of living is just pretty low in general. I've heard the same thing about Nevada. Yep. Because they collect most of their taxes off of gambling and things. And yep. then Florida also doesn't have a state income tax. I think Tennessee may not either, but I'm not sure on that one. Alaska pays you to live there. Yes. But then you have to live in Alaska. Mm. <laughs> uh, which I'm not. I don't, I don't know about the other listeners, but I'm not really a fan of. I lived in Alaska for three months during the summer. It's beautiful up there. But it doesn't get dark. Uh, yeah, in the summer it doesn't get dark. And in the winter it stays dark. Doesn't get light, right. <laughs> but yeah, this so, all makes sense. Okay. What about legal issues? So we've talked a lot about kind of the financial and accounting issues, but what about legal issues like contracts or insurance or things like that? Well, yep. What do you recommend for people on those counts? Always use a written contract. No exceptions. No verbal handshake contracts aren't worth anything. 
really business is about trust, right? And mm-hmm. so you start with a verbal agreement that then you document. And it's not as if someone's going to try and necessarily, you know, screw you, right? But they may forget or you may forget. And so it's really useful to have written documentation that you know you both agreed on at one point in time in order to reference. And you should, the way that I advocate structuring it in the book is to use what's called a master services agreement mm-hmm. and then uh, statements of work. And so the way that that works is you basically sign one big contract at the start of any engagement with a new client. And then from then on, all those terms are basically copied automatically to every other engagement with that same client without having to sign new things. And so you can negotiate fine points at the start, and then every other engagement is just a one sheet. This is what's going to happen. Sign here. This is how much it costs. Now, I know that Jonathan works a little bit differently. I don't think he actually hands out paper contracts or digital paper contracts. I believe he just gets paid up front and then just promises to give the money back if he doesn't deliver. Yeah, that's a way to go. I think there still should be at least Nick D uses something like that mm-hmm. where he actually has just a generic contract that you agree to, you pay him up front and by paying him you agree to this generic contract. And yeah, it includes a refund. Yeah, I I used a contract like that as my master services agreement and that was exactly it was that, yeah, you pay me a deposit and that's agreeing to the contract. And I mm-hmm. ran it by my attorney and he said that that was perfectly legal and perfectly binding. And then, yeah, I would just provide a, a services agreement that said, this is what we're going to, you know, this is what we're going to do and this is what you're going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Those are both valid ways. The important point there is to talk with an attorney about it because every contract, like every, just like with taxes, every state, every local place is going to have different things that have to be included or can't be included in a contract. So talk with an attorney. Yep. It was the contract killer. I get asked about this all the time, and I'm not the one that's recommended it over and over. It was uh, Curtis McHale. Where's that contract that he talked about? So (laughs) yeah, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But I took that to a couple of folks and same thing, you know, it was, you know, to, or to my attorney and yeah, he, he was like, yeah, that, that'll work too. So what, yep. one thing that uh, I'm wondering about, though, with contracts in particular, I'm going to put a link to Nick's episode of, on productized consulting in the show notes. But one thing I'm wondering about is international. And this is something maybe Reuven can talk about a little bit because I've had international clients. We had a contract, but I can't really sue them in Dubai or Hong Kong or wherever they were at. You can. <laughs> but <laughs> it, I clearly, if, if you can't afford to go after them, then you're not charging enough, Chuck. Um, <laughs> look, it's a problem and I've gotten bitten by it. And it, it means, cause look, in theory, if I have a, a client, uh, elsewhere and like I have plenty of clients in Israel, but I have plenty of clients abroad elsewhere. Mm. And if I have a client elsewhere in the U S say, sure, in theory, I could go and sue them and so on and so forth. And I have U S citizenship. So I don't have any problems getting a visa to go in, but it's going to be a long, expensive, drawn out, yeah. and probably unprofitable haul. So I basically go into projects with people abroad on the assumption that it had better really – like hoping that it's going to work out because if it doesn't, then I'm just going to – it's going to be a wash. Like, like I'm just going to take it as a loss. I mean, I've even joked with people in the U.S. about how, why don't we say in the contract that the jurisdiction is London so both of us would need to fly, <laughs> right? Like, like clearly this is absurd, but – it just at the at the end of the day, those contracts are worth something, yep. but not a lot. I hate to say it. Yeah, and I've written off thousands of dollars because of that. 
And it was like, yeah, I, I mean, I could sue them. And that, you know, my contract put the jurisdiction here, but <laughs> getting a judgment against them wouldn't do any good. Right. Because they would have no, no incentive to come pay it. Right. They come to the U.S. and they might get in trouble if I know they're here and can get a sheriff after them. But yeah, good good luck. Yeah, exactly. So right now it's it's um, look in such cases you can say well you need to pay in advance or more in advance yeah. and that's or, what I've done like, right right and I mean I think I had someone in Japan for whom I did some work and he would just sort of pay it wasn't exactly weekly billing but I would say like you know do two week chunks like, you know, 10 hours a week, something like that. And he would just pay for each chunk in advance. Mm-hmm. And we were both pretty much okay with it because it was small enough that if I did a terrible job, he would say, fine, I lost, you know, a week of in- uh, week, week of payment, two weeks of payment. And, you know, if he didn't pay me, then I would say the same thing. So both of us were sort of on the hook for much less and there was less risk associated with it. Right. Yeah, that's a really good way to structure things. Limit your loss on both ends. Yeah, that's the way I think Eric does it where it's, you know, you pay for the next week's worth of work. So yeah, the only risk is he doesn't deliver and they're out the few thousand dollars whatever his weekly rate is. Mm-hmm. So the other end of this that I guess we haven't tackled yet is you said get a bank account and find clients. Well, we talked about getting a bank account, get a separate bank account. What about finding clients? What do you tell people there? I specifically don't cover that in the book because there's so many other great resources for that. I really liked Brennan Dunn's work, the Double Your Freelancing book. It was super helpful starting out. I I didn't have any clients and I still read it and it was still super helpful. Every client I've had has been from networking in really just one or two particular Slack chats over the course of the last couple of years. Oh, wow. Like, yeah, like I just, and it wasn't intentional. It was just, I, I went into these, these chats and or I was invited in and I just was super helpful and people decided to pay me. That's pretty good. Yeah. So I think what you described there, Pete, is sort of the framework of you know, half of the type of marketing that really works, which is just uh, being helpful at some level of scale. I mean, either one to one or one to many. And, um, and that often does lead to people saying, wow, uh, I would pay you to be more helpful. <laughs> right. It's nice to hear that that worked for you. Yeah. I wrote my first book about uh, doing Stripe integrations in Rails apps. And that generated in excess of $200,000 for me in client work alone. And then just not even including the book sales. I was going to say in book sales. Whoa. No, it was not that successful in book sales. But it established you as an expert in something that is mission critical for a business. I mean, payments don't, it doesn't get more critical than payments. Right. And so they were willing to come to you and they were like, well, we could have our guy do the payment or we could have this guy who wrote a book. So, right. No, that's, that's great. I followed uh, Nathan Berry's process for that first book. You know, a thing I knew how to do. And then his, his book was, is actually called authority. And it's about how to actually express the fact that, yes, you do know about this and then get people to pay for it. It's a great book, too. Yeah. Pete, I'm curious to know what mistakes you made because you said you've been a freelancer now for a few years. What mistakes you've made on the, on the business side that you include in your book that you – because know, all of us have these war stories and these deep gashes and scars that we try to warn others away uh, from doing. So what, what are some of yours? I've been incredibly lucky and haven't had too many terrible clients. I guess I've had a couple clients that weren't ideal – uh, one of them was lo- a local tiny startup, and that wasn't great because their cash flow is not very good. Uh, and another was a giant military contractor, and also not great. Their cash flow was fine, but they didn't want to share it with me. 
very frequently. <laughs> <laughs> so, and also they were super inflexible. Like the really big clients seem to have, especially really big clients who are subcontracting, have these like target hourly rates and like target average hourly rates across all of their subcontractors. Mm-hmm. And that's really not very convenient when I bill higher than that and typically bill by the day. And so though there's there's a lot of weird negotiations that have to happen to make that work. But yeah, I think personally I will stay away from both of those genres of clients from now on. As far as business business mistakes, you know, I can't think of any, but I do a lot of research before I do anything and that has saved me, I'm sure, a bunch. And I ask stupid questions to accountants. I have no shame about that. I'll just <laughs> I ask stupid questions to accountants and lawyers and and that's fine. Luckily I have a my aunt is a lawyer and she will answer questions for free. So Look, I, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but like, you know, once a year I have to do a, like, I, I don't remember exactly what it'd be called, like an annual report. Well, I don't have to do it, but my accountant prepares an annual report to the Israeli tax authorities. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm paying taxes every month or every other month, depending on the type of taxes, but you have to sort of submit something to the, the tax authorities. And so I have to go in and sign. And so that's the chance each year for my accountant to go over the profit and loss statement and all this other stuff. And, and, it's actually a fascinating experience for me because that's when I get to know what my clients feel like. Where like I, the, the, the accountant's like saying all these things and my eyes are glazing over. I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I, and I'm thinking, I'm sure this is really, really important. I am getting maybe 20% of it. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and, then I, and then I sign on the dotted line. He says, okay. And now I ask lots of questions. But I just feel like at the end of the day, it's totally trust. And I'm betting slash trusting that my accountant knows what he's doing and sort of what's in my best interest. And I'm glad that he's dealing with this and, and, and not me. I have a, a mistake, but it wasn't mine, actually. <laughs> I, so I pay a payroll company to do my payroll just for me. Uh, and it's pretty cost effective because they talk to the state and the federal government for me. So I don't have to deal with that at all. Except that sometimes they do it wrong. And so oh, no. I, I paid all the taxes correctly. Everything was fine. And then I start getting these mailings from the state of Michigan. One every – I was paying myself a weekly payroll at the time. So I got a mailing every week that's like, you sent us money, but we don't know what it's for. Oh, uh, gosh. Su- submit, <laughs> submit a return. And I'm like, what is this? And it took months for those things to stop even after we cleared it all up just because for some reason the state of Michigan's uh, queue was backed up. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Uh, that wasn't very much fun, but that's that's why I paid the payroll company. So, is there anything else that people should know about when they're starting up a freelance business? Other than what we talked about, yeah. Uh, in the U.S., health insurance is really important. Uh, oh, don't get me started. I mean, um, yes, that's important. It's really important to have. I don't go without it. That would be penny wise and pound foolish. And as Chuck is, I'm sure, delayed to remember, isn't it now the law as well? Yes, it's- you have to have it, or you have to pay. <laughs> You have to pay a fine. Yeah. I, uh, uh, yeah. It's it's a pain, but I, it's totally worth it. And the great thing about being a small business is that you can write it off. Yes. So my wife and I have really good health insurance and we just write it off. And it's just in our cost structure, in my rate structure, it's included in that. So I, I, I can't afford add, really good health insurance, but I'm not going to go into the political debate over that. I, I, I want to add a few points about that. I mean, so first of all, a lot of, I mean, I realize now things are changing with uh, health insurance in the U.S. You know, it's creeping closer to being a uh, civilized country in that sense. But um, <laughs> <laughs> you really want to open uh, this can of worms, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I do want to say, like, 
A lot of people when they're younger say, well, I don't need health insurance. But that's when if you get on certain plans, it's much cheaper. I mean, my wife and I have now been uh, looking into getting private health insurance in addition to supplement what we've got here in Israel through the public system. And um, it turns out like now we're old fogies. We're in our 40s. And um, so now the insurance agent is saying, well, I'll have to check this, I'll have to check that, because we now have pre-existing conditions that they'll say, well, we'll take you, but this and this and this won't necessarily be covered. But okay. if we had gotten in 10 years ago, obviously those conditions or most of them wouldn't have existed. So the earlier you get in a whole lot of things, the cheaper, easier, um, and better it might be. So really, it's one of those things where if you're in your 20s and 30s and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm going to live forever, you won't, and you should be better <laughs> early on. And if you're outside of the U.S. and you have a public health system, even though Israel's public health system is pretty good, I would say even very good, it doesn't cover everything. It doesn't cover everything so, so well. And so we've decided to get supplemental insurance. And I've been surprised by how much it covers and what it does. And I've been here for 20 years now. So it's definitely worth, if you're outside the U.S., looking into these sorts of supplements, at least finding out good, bad, or otherwise, and how expensive they are. Because it was actually surprisingly not expensive also. Yeah, I've heard the same thing about the health plans in Canada is that public health care covers a lot, but it, for example, it doesn't cover prescription drugs. And so you have to, if you want insurance to pay for that, you have to pay for the insurance. Yep. But yeah, uh, um, I'm just going to, I'm just going to throw out there too, with the current way that healthcare works in the U S get a professional to help you with that too. Yes. Um, I've got, I've got a company here in Utah that, you know, they have a guy that I've talked to over and over and over again, and he has helped me navigate that system so that I could actually get what I need. And without him, I really had no idea. I, I would have made a poor decision because I was about to make a poor decision. And then I talked to him and he said, actually consider this, 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 and this. And it turns out that it's a couple thousand dollars cheaper to pay a little bit higher premium and get prescription coverage for me. Oh, absolutely. Hmm. So because I have the diabetes medication that I have to purchase and pay for. And uh -huh. so if I got a plan that had a higher deductible, that included the prescriptions or if I had a higher plan or a plan that didn't have a prescription deductible at all, then it would cost me a whole lot more. And so we wound up getting a little bit more expensive plan, even though our out-of-pocket every month is higher, but in reality, our out-of-pocket over the year is lower. Yeah, absolutely. And those those people typically will be free to you because the insurance pay, companies pay them a you know a referral fee. Yes. And they work for all the all the insurance companies, so you'll get the best. Yeah. Go with an unbonded agent is what you're looking for. Yep. Because then they are not, they, they're not selling one company's products. They're selling everybody's products. Yep. The same with, with any insurance really. Like if you decide you need professional liability insurance, which mm -hmm. some contracts and some clients will want you to have, go with a broker, find, find a broker and, yep. and they will find you the best deal. Yep. That has almost always been the case for me. When I went with somebody who only sold one company's product, I wound up find, finding out that there was a better deal on a better product from another company that I could have gotten if I had just talked to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Wow. I was going to talk about liability insurance. Yeah, um, go ahead. Just briefly. It's a thing that clients will want you to have, and it covers things like if you mess up, usually your contract will say you can't sue me, but they may try to sue you anyway. Mm -hmm. The professional liability insurance will cover up to a limit and also pay for lawyers which is very helpful because lawyers are expensive. And then, you know, off chance things like uh, usually they'll include like a mini policy for if you lose some data and then get sued or you, you know, expose some PII somehow. So that's useful and pretty cost effective. I think I have a million dollar policy and it's hundred bucks a month. Maybe I think yeah. it, it's several million dollar policies kind of bundled together. Yeah. They're not terribly expensive. 
And yeah. in a lot of cases, I mean, it only takes you getting sued one time in order for it to be worth it. Right. Exactly. And again, that's a deductible cost that you yep. can bundle into your rate. So have you dealt much with hiring people? No. Uh, yeah. I'm trying desperately to not hire anyone, except maybe my wife. Um, <laughs> so I have uh, a few subcontractors that work for me, and that's... But then I don't have all of the withholding taxes and all that garbage. Yeah. There's a lot of baggage that comes with hiring people. Yep. And I know that varies from country to country and state to state as well, so... You'll want to talk to a professional before you do that. No, but hiring people is definitely a, a, a big step. I mean, I've done it a few times. I've got someone working for me now. And there's a big difference between hiring someone, at least like even if at the end of the day, legally, there's no difference, even though there is. But even if there weren't, emotionally, it's a huge difference between having someone working for you and someone just subcontracting for you, emotionally on both sides. Like there's, a, there's an implied at least loyalty is perhaps too strong of a word, but you know, between the two sides that you're going to try to help each other out for everyone's mutual benefit. Yep. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, legal things too. Before the recent changes in health insurance, one of the big things was providing health insurance for people. And so there's a lot of explicit responsibility there, which changes. I would, in my, I imagine it changes how you look for clients, how mm-hmm. you maintain client relationships and everything related to your business changes. Well, and you have right. unemployment, so you have to pay unemployment insurance to the state mm-hmm. and you've also got to, you know, I mean, and the thing is, is that depending on where you are and what the setup is, my dad, my dad's a dentist here in Provo, and he had one girl that worked for him. She he, he dental assistants. He's had, had two dental assistants that he's fired for cause. One stole from him, and the other one committed uh, payroll fraud. Basically, she claimed time on her timesheet that she didn't actually work. Huh. So they both were convicted and had to pay reparations and he still had to pay an insurance form or an unemployment form. And so, I mean, you really have to be aware of where the limitations are and what the risks are because it may be worth it to hire somebody as a full-time employee or it may not. Right. All right. Any other thoughts on this before we go to picks? Um, All right. Philip, do you have some picks for us? I do. I have two picks. Uh, One's a follow-up to last week. I, Mentioned the Independent Consulting Manual last week. It's a giant book with um, contributions from a bunch of really smart people about how to kind of get past that six-figure barrier as a solo person with no employees. And the discount code elves have been hard at work making a discount code for the freelancer show. Yay! Um, so if you go to independentconsultingmanual.com and use the code freelance show, I think there's a character limit, so it's not freelancer. It's just freelance show, all in word, as a discount code. You will receive 25% off of any package you order for that book. Secondarily, as someone who spends voluminous amounts of time in front of a uh, computer display, uh, I use eye drops to moisten and lubricate my eyes. And I have discovered a, a new eye drop that I was unaware of. I live in California in Sonoma County, which is home to many, many, many potheads. And I have found the the uh, pothead eye drop, the choice of potheads by this company I'd never heard of before. It's called Roto, R-O-H-T-O. comes in this little weird uh, egg-shaped bottle, and they are some of the best eye drops I've ever used. So those of you who suffer from uh, dry eyes, irritated eyes like I do, uh, suffer no more. Those are my picks for this week. All right. Reuven, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I got two picks this week also. So first of all, 
when I'm teaching uh, my programming classes, one of the things I love to point out to people is that floating point math is not exact. Um, and even programmers who've been working for many, many, many years are surprised to discover that if you do 0.1 plus 0.2, the answer is not 0.3 um, in most languages. And so you might have missed it, but there's a fantastic new website called 0.3000000004.com. <laughs> that, that lists all of the different languages this guy could find. I don't know who did it, but someone spent a lot of time looking at different languages and finding which ones actually have accurate floating point math and which ones don't. So that's a, a fun one to shock the programmers among you uh, and, and the, the ones you love. My uh, PhD research group uh, produces a programming language, and it's based on Java. And we would get questions every so often from people saying, your language is broken because it has this problem. And we have to explain them, no, this is actually an official standard of the IEEE. Um, and Java does this too. You just never noticed it. Um, it became part of our FAQ. So that's pick number one. Pick number two is um, I've been doing a lot of training online recently uh, using WebEx. And um, it takes a little while to sort of get up and running and understand how to understand the nuances of it. But I'm actually enjoying it more and more. I think it's a really uh, pretty robust and useful system. I've had, I'm teaching a class this week with 20 people in it. And most of us, I mean, not everyone turns on their camera, but most people are using video, between video and audio and shared screen and everything. It's, it's, it's been pretty good. And I'm actually thinking of um, starting to teach classes online by myself, sort of independently. And uh, I might well use that. Uh, I know I've been talking to Crowdcast a little bit as well. We'll see exactly which one's out. But I wouldn't be surprised if I go with, uh, with WebEx. Anyway, those are my, uh, my picks for this week. All right. Um, I've got a few picks here. Uh, the first one is Freelance Remote Conf. I think I've roped most of the current panel into speaking. If not, you're, you're invited. <laughs> so yeah, so we're going to be doing a conference in February, and we are going to be talking about freelancing. And uh, I've invited a whole bunch of people. Uh, Call for Proposals is also open if you'd like to speak. So go check that out. I'm actually doing 13 conferences next year, and you can get a season pass if you would like, or you can get a pass to three, six, or nine. So if you see that you want to go to some, half, or most, and not all, then you can get that. I'm still working out when I'm going to do the podcasting conference. I swapped that out for React because I had a whole lot more requests for React than I did for podcasting. And then all the people who were looking at it and going, where'd the podcasting one go? I said, okay, I'll do that one too. <laughs> so that's kind of the deal. So uh, you can go check that out. Um, I've also kind of been hooked on some games lately on my phone. One of them is uh, Clash of Clans, and the other one is Star Wars Commander. They are pretty similar. So if you like one, you'll probably like the other. One Star Wars themed, and the other one isn't. But yeah, lots of fun. You build a base, you join a clan or a squad, depending on which game you're in. Uh, you can send troops to other people. You attack other people. Clash of Clans, the clans actually war against each other, which is kind of fun. Anyway, lots of fun, so I've been enjoying that. And those are my picks. Pete, what are your picks? My first pick is uh, actually the same as Philip's, uh, not the eyedrops, but the independent consulting manual. If you buy one of the packages, I'm not sure which one, but you get a discount on my book as well. I don't think it stacks, but you, if you click through, you'll get 25% off my book. And then the second pick is I've been playing a game. It's called Neko Atsumi. It's sort of ridiculous. It's It's a super casual game where you put some toys out in a yard and some cats come and play with them. And it's adorable. I'll put a link in the show notes here, but it's fun and it's free and it's pretty relaxing if you like cats. So if people want to find out more about you, about your book 
or what you're up to these days or hire you for some brilliant coding, where do they go? Uh, my website is petekeen.net. You can go there and find links to my books and articles and uh, consulting page and go from there. If you want to hire me for consulting, there's a form that you can fill out on my website. Yep. And Keen is spelled like it sounds K-E-E-N. Yep. PeteKeen.net. All right. Well, thank you for coming, Pete. We're going to go ahead and wrap up the show. Okay. And Thanks for having me. Yeah. We'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.